What is up, everyone? Good morning. Thank you guys for sticking it out through the snow this morning. I know it's cold. You might probably sitting in your bed like, ah, I don't want to get up, but thank you for coming. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Hezekiah Trevino. I'm one of the pastoral residents here at RIV. Um, if you've been following along, you know that we've been in a series called The Sticky Gospel, where we're just walking through the book of Mark. Uh, today we're in Mark chapter 9, 14, uh, and we're going to be through 29. Uh, but before we dive in, I just want to summarize a little bit about where we are up until this point. If you watched last week's message, uh, you'll know that chapter 9 in Mark is like this turning point in Mark where we'll start to see Jesus pulling away from a lot of the miracles and things that he's done and more into teaching about faith, teaching about, teach, mostly to his disciples about the mission that he has here on earth. And, uh, and part of that is the cohort truth of his purpose, which included his suffering, death, and ultimate rising from the dead. Um, and we'll see Jesus moving away from this. Uh, normally, like after some of the stories, it says like Jesus tells the people like, don't tell anybody what I did. But we'll start to see him not saying that. Um, in the first few verses of chapter nine, there's this uh, transfiguration story. I'm not going to teach about it, but uh, we'll see that Jesus, Peter, James and John uh, see this and then. This is where we enter into them coming off of this mountain, this supernatural experience, and then walking into this situation. Um, so if you got your Bibles, you know, like if you want to scroll, most of you guys probably scrolling your way to, to the verse. Um, or if you just don't have anything, we got it on the screen for you. Um, we'll be in Mark 9, starting at chapter... Or, Chapter 9, starting at verse 14. And it says that when they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him. Now, so we see Jesus, Peter, James, and John coming back into the town where they walk into these other nine disciples disputing with some scribes. And then there's this big crowd, right? And I love that it states that uh, there's this large crowd around them because it's, it's, it's the same thing that goes on today, right? Like, and maybe this is only for people that grew up in the hood or something, but if you ever, like, a neighbor argue, um, and then you're just, like, people are peeking out the windows, right? Like, you pull down the blinds. Some people just act like they got to get something out their car, and they're just like, you know, right? Um, you know, or... Uh, you know, and, and eventually, like, if it keeps going on, eventually just all the neighbors are just outside watching, like, <laughs> right, in the robes and stuff. But, uh, you know, I also think of just, like, a high school fight, right? Like, it's, it's amazing how fast a crowd can form around a high school fight. Has anybody ever worked in a high school? In it, a split second, there's 100 kids. It's crazy. Uh, but, and, you know, confrontation just has this way of uniting people in a bad way, you know? Uh, but this is kind of what I imagine Jesus and the three disciples that were with him are walking into, this chaotic scene, uh, this argument. And um, right after this, we see that the large crowd just runs to Jesus. It isn't clear why they run to Jesus um, in amazement, but I can imagine that Jesus, um, <clears throat> them running to Jesus, 
Just like any of these situations, like, yo, Jesus, you ever, you, you see what's going on? Like, if you, you heard what, like, aren't these your people? Like, you see what's going on? And, and Jesus just asked the disciples, the scribes, or the crowd doesn't say who's it's addressed to, but he says, what are you arguing with them about? And then the man from the crowd comes in the next verse, and he says, teacher, I brought you my son, I brought my son to you. He's been tormented by the spirit. And I, I, and I told your disciples and they couldn't drive it out. And now let's stop here for a moment because he starts this question with saying like, teacher, I brought my son to you. And Jesus just got there. Um, this man somehow knows that these disciples are representatives of Jesus and he doesn't say, I brought my sons to your disciples and they couldn't drive them out. He says, I brought my, sons, my son to you and your disciples couldn't drive them out. And I imagine Jesus being a bit angry in this moment because Jesus had already given them authority to cast out demons. In fact, in Mark chapter 6, it says that they drove out a bunch of demons already. And so I could imagine uh, Jesus being a little frustrated and here we're, we're faced with our first question of like, why couldn't the disciples drive out the demon from this boy? And we will find out, like always, Jesus knows the answer to this. He immediately says in the next verse, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. It doesn't state clearly who this question is addressed to, but if I was to guess, it was to the disciples, right? Uh, because he responds almost the exact same way he did in chapter 8. Uh, if you read chapter 8, he, he responds like an angry parent, right? Everyone imagines Jesus walking around with the wind blowing and he's just sparkling and, you know, like he's just smiling all the time. But this shows a part of Jesus that like part of his humanity, right? Uh, and just like some other stories, it shows him just like upset, irritated uh, that he's walking into this situation. And just like a good parent, he still shows love and concern um, in his righteous anger that he had. He says, he's like, how long will I put up with you? And just like a parent, he's, bring him to me, Right. Like, like, you guys, I've, I've seen this plenty of times. I don't have kids yet, thank God. Uh, but, you know, they, you know, a parent just gets frustrated, like, why are you doing that? Why, get off of there. Now come here and get something to eat. Let me cook you up some, right? And that's kind of like what I imagine is going on here. Uh, and we see after this, uh, whatever the spirit was in this boy, it didn't like Jesus. Because it said that when it saw Jesus, it immediately threw the, the boy down into this seizure-like state. And Jesus asked a question to the father, and almost like, uh, like a physician. He says, how long has this been happening, right? Now, I find this interesting because, as we have seen, uh, Mark tends to put not put a lot of details in, in some of his stories. Uh, like we think of the, the blind man in chapter 8 or, or, uh, or the deaf man in chapter 7. And it doesn't say how long they were inflicted, but here the author seems to be putting some detail into the time frame of how long this boy has been suffering. And 
Maybe it, it, uh, this was a response to the father, uh, uh, you know, to, to help him put the time frame on it and, and a lesson for the disciples so they could understand the severity of what's going on. But, but the response from the father helps to put a measurement on how serious this is. And we find out that Jesus always has a purpose in why he asks a question. He's always strategic, right? Uh, like I said before, he's like the clapback king. Like he, he never, he never, he's never without an answer. And I believe that Jesus asked this question um, not because he was curious about the situation or because he didn't know. Because we've seen Jesus before read the Pharisees' minds. He's, he's told people um, about their past before without even knowing them. And so I don't believe that this is just somehow, uh, Jesus somehow lost his ability here. Instead, we see that Jesus seems to be soliciting a response from his father. And like I said, maybe even trying to show the disciples like, hey, this is how severe this is. And the father responds and tells Jesus the seriousness and the destructiveness of this spirit that is in his son. And after he's done explaining the seriousness of it, he ends with this statement. He says, but if you can do anything, have pity on us and help us. Now, in my opinion, this, this sounds, at first reading, it sounds like this is a little pessimistic, right? Like, it's, it doesn't sound that positive. Like, come on, dude, like, you could have come up with a better pitch to Jesus to heal your son. But he says, but if you can do anything. But like I said before, like, it's easy to, like, look into these stories and see, you know, like, think, like, huh, what, like, why did he do that? Because we know the full story, but... If we were to put ourselves, just imagine yourself in this father's shoes, right? Those who have kids. There, there's this sense of, of hopelessness and, and rightfully so. This infliction has been going on since childhood, he says. Uh, the spirit in this boy now is just messing with his social life, but it's, it's trying to kill him. And I can imagine that the father feels helpless. He can't do anything about it. And he's probably been traveling from city to city. He's probably been seeking out different help. And he's, he's probably explained this story hundreds of times. And, and then he encounters these disciples. And people has been, been hyping them up like, yeah, yo, these disciples have been casting out all these sort of demons. Just bring them to him. And then when he finally gets to the disciples, they don't do it. They couldn't do it. And so now he's at this point where he's with Jesus. He's like, but if you can do anything, like, that has to be discouraging. And then, and then the next verse, and I love how Jesus responds. He says, if you can, right? I think of like the Drake me. You guys ever seen the Drake? Like, Drake, you know, like, if you can, <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, do you know who I am? Everything is possible for the one who believes. And here we are met with what I believe to be one of the most uh, profound theological statements ever made in the Bible. Because the father cries out to Jesus and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Like, that's a powerful statement. 
And, and, you know, at first I was confused when I first read this. Anybody else was confused when they first heard this? It's, you know, it's like, isn't that like an oxymoron, right? It's like, like Biggie Smalls or Hot Ice, right? Like, <laughs> it, it, it's crazy. Uh, and I just assumed that it read like this. I assumed that it says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Like the father believes, but he has some unbelief in him, right? And so he needs Jesus to help him get rid of all that, uh, all those doubts and stuff so he can truly walk in his fullness of his faith, right? That's how I imagine it, it read, but, uh, you know, because obviously doubt can't be in the same place as, you know, faith and belief, right? Right? And that word we hear all the time, well... When I was reading it, there's no but in there. So that doesn't make sense. Now, I'm taking some, like, Greek classes in, in Bible college right now. I'm not that good. I, I do, you know, uh, I know some, but I know some words. And the word, I know the word for but, all right? <laughs> At least I know that, right? And it's, it's, it's day in Greek, right? Delta Epsilon. And... I was like, you know, maybe the English translators, you know, they just forgot to put it in there or something. And I read it and it's, it's not in there. But is not in there. The statement literally reads, I believe, period. Help my unbelief, period. So what do we do with this, right? We lean into it. Because to be honest, this is a reality for most believers. Some of you guys know, uh, you've probably seen me before on, uh, online playing music, normally at the whole venue. Um, uh, but I'm a musician. I remember, sometimes I like think back of when I first started learning music. And there's there's some like cringeworthy moments of this overconfidence that I had when I first started. Um, I remember just starting to learn guitar. My parents had just had enough money to to afford this little cheap guitar, and I'm grateful for it. And I remember bringing that guitar and this little baby amp to school. Right when I first started learning, I didn't even know anything. And I remember I first started learning. My dad taught me, and he always likes to take credit for teaching me music, even though he only knew three chords, right? But I learned them three chords. And I remember taking that guitar and the amp to school and, and playing in class. I mean, I was playing the mess out of those three chords, right? And some of the kids would be like, hey, can you play this song? I'd be like, nope, but I can play these three chords. And I, you know, I would just go in, and I thought I was so sweet. And, you know, um, but then when I look back on it, I'm like, man, that's embarrassing because I was really bad Uh, because as I got older, I started to get around musicians who were really good, who knew more than three chords. And I'm like, man, there's a lot I need to learn. And so eventually I I like, you know, uh, took the time to um, practice and I, I stopped going out a lot into public trying to play. I was like, man, I, I really suck. And, <laughs> but I found that this whole experience that I had, 
And mind you, now I play music in front of people, right? And I actually get paid sometimes to play music. Um, so I'm not that bad. But it took that humbling experience of me like, I'm really not that good. But I found that this whole experience uh, is actually called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And everybody goes through this in almost every area of life, right? Uh, you start off in a certain topic, an area of life that catapults you into this extremely high, toxic uh, sense of self-confidence, right? And then eventually you re reach the peak, right? And this is uh, uh, what we call the Mount Know-It-All, or really the peak of, of Mount Stupid, I like to call <laughs> And some examples of this, right, is uh, when you have, like, young kids, right? Uh, they start learning things in school at a young age, and it's, like, real cute at first, right? Because they, they just come to you randomly, and they're like, did you know avocados are a fruit and not a vegetable? And you're like, oh, that's so cute. You know, or did you know that Australia is whiter than, there's just these random facts that you put. Did you know that Jesus actually wasn't white? And you're like, where'd you learn that from? And, and most people think it's cute until they keep doing it over and over again. And, and then eventually it gets a little bit annoying, right? Because then they start acting like they really know everything. But then they start going to school and they, they start think, seeing the wider world and seeing like, Man, there's a lot of stuff I don't know. And so this is when they fall into this valley of despair, that little dip. And, you know, that's, again, that's the moment where I was like, man, I'm not that good to be playing around everybody. Um, but when you fall into this humble state, it leads us into this path of enlightenment. And then we slowly start to actually learn some things, right? But we're careful because we're like, we know that we don't know everything. And uh, then eventually some people reach the top, right? They're close to the top. They still go and they become an expert and a guru. But it takes a little while. And I bring this diagram up because I, I believe that this is where the disciples probably went wrong. Right, they had healed all sorts of people. They cast out all sorts of demons. And, and they were probably full of confidence in their abilities, and on top of the, uh, eventually they made it to the top, top of Mount Know-It-All. And then they get confronted with this demon that they couldn't cast out, and that just plummets them into the valley of despair, knowing like, where did I go wrong? And this is what Jesus warned them about in, in the last chapter when he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Don't be like them. Because the Pharisees thought that power and authority came from the religious piety and, and, and their unblemished precision of, of following the law. And Jesus is saying, don't be like them. But yet we see the disciples falling in that direction. Then we encounter this boy, uh, you know, the disciples encounter this boy thinking that it was probably just going to be an easy thing, and then they find out real quick, yeah. man, I couldn't drive it out. What, what is going on here? 
Meanwhile, this boy's father seems to be clothed with competence and humbleness uh, from being in this desperate state and condition for years, um, worrying about if the son is going to kill his son or not and not being able to do anything about it. So he's in this state of helplessness. And his response shows that he is honest in his current state. He's not lying about it. He knows he can't do anything about it. I think the father truly believed that Jesus could heal his son. And at the same time, I think he had doubts and worries that Jesus could heal his son. And how is this possible? Because I think the first half of this statement, the the, I believe, I believe that was a choice. He made the choice to believe. And then uh, uh, despite his unbelief. And then the second half of the statement, help my unbelief, I think that shows insight to this man truly understanding the state of humanity, right? This man's situation has left him in the difficult place of living in God's promises while simultaneously living in a world full of sin and suffering where things do not work out the way they're supposed to. And I find it Mad annoying. You guys, you guys might find it mad annoying too when somebody comes up to you and says, in, in situations that are tough and they just have faith, right? You guys ever met those people? You guys ever had somebody tell you that? Right? They think somehow that, that faith is this easy-go-lucky thing that, uh, uh, you know, they just, just have faith. That's the answer, right? And imagine like... And, and some people preach sermon. But imagine I preached the sermon. I was just like, all right, well, the answer is faith. All right, y'all, see ya. You know, like, okay, but I struggle with faith. Sometimes I doubt. And I think that is why the author puts this in this story. We learn about having faith in God. We, verses like walk by faith, not by sight, right? Or whatever you ask for in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. But if I'm being honest, sometimes having faith is hard. When doubts creep into our lives, when, when we're met with constant loss and hurts over and over again, you guys ever had those moments in life? When we don't know where things, uh, uh, when, when things will get better for us, when things just don't make sense, it's hard to just hold on to, yeah, just have faith. And because so many take faith so lightly and out of context, faith can start to become this cliche phrase that doesn't do much for us in our present situation. So when we read the story of Jesus healing uh, uh, this woman with the issue of blood because of her faith or or this paralyzed man because of their faith, uh, uh, it can start to become this like buzzword, right? Faith. Like a fairy tale. And I'm... Sure, that's why the author puts this in this story, this perceived dichotomy of what faith truly is, you know, and that it isn't just all good and happy. Because we live in a sinful, broken world, there will be doubts and and battles with unbelief uh, that are fighting for the place in our heart. 
Faith is not the absence of doubt. And this verse proves that because it shows that faith is the total dependence on Jesus, regardless of the doubt and fears that plague our hearts and minds. This man believed, yes, he did, but he also had doubts and fears and probably was unsure that Jesus could actually heal his son. And you know what? Jesus didn't turn him away for this honesty that he had. He doesn't tell the man, all right, well, bring your son back once you, you know, once you get rid of some of those doubts, all right? Once you get rid of that unbelief, like, then come back to me. He doesn't refuse to heal uh, this boy because of the incompleteness uh, of, his, of this man's faith. But what does Jesus do? Jesus heals him. No more questions asked. And why? Because this man, even with the doubts and fears, still chose to believe in him. Because it's not about the amount of faith that is important. It is about the object of faith, the object of that faith that's important. And that's why Jesus says things like, uh, with faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Because it doesn't take the complete absence of doubt. It, it just takes a small amount of faith. Just trusting in Jesus. The disciples were probably on their high horse thinking that somehow they wanted the power and authority, or, or that the power and authority uh, of Jesus uh, was in their hands. And that they were able to wield it because of their own Selves, because of their own power and will. And then when, when they get confronted with this and they ask Jesus the question of like, why couldn't we do this? Jesus tells them the honest truth. It, it wasn't, they're, they're probably sitting there thinking like, Jesus, I couldn't do this. Uh, uh, tell us why. Is it because we didn't pray loud enough? Is it, is it because I forgot my holy oil, right? Is it because I forgot my prayer garb and I didn't do all the right things? And they totally were missing the, uh, the, 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 the fact that their dependence on themselves were, was worse than the unbelief and that little bit of doubt or a lot of doubt that this man had. And when we get to a point where we think we don't need Jesus or, or that we can sustain ourselves, Jesus can't use us. Jesus is showing in the stories that, uh, that he would rather have somebody with a, a little bit of doubt and some unbelief mixed in with that faith and trust in him than somebody who, who thinks that they could do it all themselves and doesn't depend on him. Yeah. And I don't think that this is just an easy thing to do. I, I, I'm not leaving you, like I said, with that cliche, just have faith. Because as we see from this story, uh, things may get hard or not make sense once we make that decision to trust in Jesus. In the next verses, it says that this boy still had seizures. 
And we'll find out that when we put our faith in Jesus, the enemy doesn't like that. Because once he's seen this happen, once Jesus called it out, this boy just fell back into these seizures. And, and you know what? Uh, things looked exactly the same as it did before Jesus came. 928 says, why couldn't we drive it out? And this situation looked worse. In fact, so much worse that everybody thought that the boy died, right? It looked worse than what it was when it started. And they didn't say, uh, uh, you know, it, it looked like the boy died. They said he died, just period, he died. Because the, the, uh, in, in this, when we make a decision to trust Jesus, I'm going to be honest, and this story should prove that things just don't automatically, just magically get better. In fact, things may get worse. And, and I love that the, the, it says that the crowd says that he died. It doesn't say that the, the father doesn't say anything. He's just sitting back. He already put his trust in Jesus. When you make a decision to trust in Jesus, it may sometimes feel like that. People will look from the outside and wonder how or why you would even trust in Jesus. And one incredible thing that I've witnessed in this walk um, with Jesus is that I've witnessed that those who have experienced unimaginable amounts of loss and pain and troubles in their lives, most people uh, who have experienced those kind of traumas, a lot of people from the outside look in and think like, why are you following Jesus? You still experience hurt. That's impossible. There's, there's still no hope. And, you know, like, why are you even a Christian if you're still going to experience all those things? And, but w- what I find amazing is that when the story plays out, then they start to ask things like, how did you make it through that? How are you not completely crazy after those things happen to you? I think of people like my wife who has been through so much in their lives and people are still like, you weren't the same person you were. You were on the same path as so-and-so. How are you here? And she always says like, it wasn't me, it was Jesus. And it sounds so cliche, but it's real. Jesus shows us what it looks like when we have faith and when we have him in our corner. He shows us in this story that he is the true holder and power uh, of authority. Because he doesn't even have to say a word or explain anything to the crowd uh, of doubters. Instead, he responds by just raising the boy up. Like, nah, he's good. 
And I can imagine people in the crowd sitting there like, that doesn't make sense. That should have killed him. They probably asked the boy, how are you even still alive and insane? I just imagine the father responding like, it wasn't me. It was Jesus. And if you're struggling in your faith today, maybe you've been hurt in the past or you've just been having some rough patches in life and it just, in those moments, it feels like God is so far away. Or maybe you've even been hurt by people in the church. Just like the father uh, saying, I brought my son to you, Jesus, and your disciples couldn't heal him. Maybe you had experience with some representatives of Jesus that were negative. And you don't trust Jesus because of that. Or you have some doubt. But just like in this story, be encouraged that God welcomes all of that. Bring those hurts those pains and doubts to his feet. And he's not afraid of those. He's not afraid of those doubts and and, and thoughts of unbelief. In fact, he welcomes all of those feelings. He knows his representatives will fail and mess up, but he still proves that he is God regardless. Just like to the man in the story. And we learn from this story that it is not the amount of time you spend reading the Bible that is imperative to your faith. It's not about how often you come to church or about how much Christian music and Christian podcasts you listen to throughout the week. Jesus gives us the true answer of what is imperative to our faith. He responds to the disciples' question by this kind can only come out by nothing but prayer. You're probably thinking like, prayer? Because that's another buzzword, right? Christian buzzword. Just pray, right? Like, that's the solution, pray? I already thought about that. But we learned that, uh, we learn about prayer in church all the time, and often it's taken for granted You know, most of us fall asleep praying. We're like, I'm going to pray tonight, and then we end up falling asleep. But Jesus is not talking about this external action of of praying that's going to make a difference. If he did, he would have prayed before he cast out this demon. He would have been an external example of that. But instead, Jesus is talking about a heart posture. A heart posture of prayer. Because it takes faith to pray. Praying is a form of submission. Prayer is more than just communicating with God. It is acknowledging you are dependent on him for all of your needs. You don't just pray to anybody. And faith is not an easy easy journey, but it, it is through prayer through that small amount of belief that you are holding on to and are willing to give to Jesus in the midst of a mountain of doubts, that, uh, that's what's going to get you through. Yeah. Your dependence on Jesus in the midst of all of that. And what we'll find is that Jesus can take that little amount of faith that you have left and he can move mountains with it. 
I just want you to be encouraged in that today. There's the world, it doesn't make sense to the world. But it is through prayer, through that dependence on God, that is important in, in what keeps you. Let's pray. Uh, thank you, Jesus, uh, just for your word, just for, for all those moments in our life where we are even in those situations that it feels hard and, and hard to trust you. Maybe, maybe our unbelief in our hearts have been just overpowering, but we still have that little amount, that mustard seed amount of faith that we're clinging on to. And, we, and I thank God that you can do something with just that. I just ask that you just uh, uh, help us, maybe uh, just help to heal us if we've been hurt by people, if we've had doubts because uh, of certain things and situations in our lives, that you take that amount of faith, that, that little bit that we have left, and you make something of it. I thank you for always being good, for always being consistent, for being a man of your word. I thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.